Blind Alley by Malcolm Jameson Nothing was further from Mr. Feathersmith's mind than dealings with streamlined mid-twentieth century witches or dickerings with the devil. But something had to be done. The world was fast going to the bow-wows and he suffered from an overwhelming nostalgia for the days of his youth. His thoughts constantly turned to Cliffordsville and the good old days when men were men and God was in his heaven and all was right with the world. He hated modern women and the blatancy of the radio, that man in the White House, the war. Mr. Feathersmith did not feel well. His customary grouch, which was a byword throughout all the many properties of Pyramidal Enterprises Incorporated, had hit an all-time high. The weather was rotten, the room too hot, business awful, and everyone around him a dope. He loathed all mention of the war, which in his estimation had been bungled from the start. He writhed and cursed whenever he thought of priorities, quotas, and taxes. He frothed at the mouth at every new government regulation. His plants were working night and day on colossal contracts that under any reasonable regime would double his wealth every six months. But what could he expect but a few paltry millions? He jabbed savagely at a button on his desk, and before even the swiftest footed of messengers could have responded, he was irritably rattling the hook of his telephone. Well, he snarled as a tired, harassed voice answered, Where's Paulson? Wake him up. I want him. Paulson popped into the room with an inquiring, Yes, sir. Mr. Paulson was his private secretary, and to his mind, stupid, clumsy, and unambitious. But he was a male, for Mr. Featherstone could not abide the type of woman that cluttered up officers in these decadent days. Everything about them was distasteful. Their bold, assured manner, their calm assumption of efficiency, their persistent invasion of fields sacred to the stronger and wiser sex. He abhorred their short skirts, their painted faces, and their varnished nails, the hussies, and the nonchalance with which they would throw a job in an employer's face if he undertook to drive them was nothing short of maddening. Hence, Mr. Paulson. I'm roasting, growled Mr. Feathersmith. This place is an oven. Yes, sir, said the meek Paulson, and went to the window where an expensive air-conditioning unit stood. It regulated the air, heating it in winter, cooling it in summer. It was cold and blustery out, and snow was in the air. Mr. Feathersmith should have been grateful, but he was not. It was a modern gadget, and though a touch of the hand was all that was needed to regulate it, he would have nothing to do with it. All Paulson did was move a knob one notch. What about the Phoenix Development shares? barked the testy old man. 
hasn't Ulrich unloaded those yet. He's had time enough. The SEC hasn't approved them yet, said Paulson apologetically. He might have added, but thought best not to, that Mr. Farquhar over there had said the prospectus stank, and that the whole proposition looked like a bid for a long-term lease on a choice cell in a federal penitentiary. Huh, went Mr. Feathersmith. A lot of communists, that's what they are. What are we coming to? Send Clive in. Mr. Clive's in court, sir, and so is Mr. Blakesley. It's about the reorganization plan for the Dulleth, Moline and Southern, the bondholders, protective committee. Huh, choked Mr. Feathersmith. Yes, those accursed bondholders, always yelping and starting things. Get out. I want to think. His thoughts were bitter ones. Never in all his long and busy life had things been as tough as now. When he had simply been Jack Feathersmith, the promoter, it had been possible to make a fortune overnight. You could lose at the same rate too, but still a man had a chance. There were no starry-eyed reformers always meddling with him. Then he had become the more dignified entrepreneur, but the pickings were still good. After that, he had styled himself as an investment banker, and had done well, though a certain district attorney raised some nasty questions about it and forced some refunds and adjustments but that had been in the thirties, when times were hard for everybody. Now, with the war on and everything, a man of ability and brains ought to mop up, but they wouldn't let him. Suddenly he realised he was panting and heaving and felt very, very weak. He must be dying, but that couldn't be right. No man of any age kept better fit, yet his heart was pounding and he had to gasp for every breath. His trembling hand fumbled for the button twice before he found it. Then as Paulson came back, he managed a faint. Get a doctor. I must be sick. For the next little while things were vague. A couple of the hated females from the outer office were fluttering and cooing about the room, and one offered him a glass of water, which he spurned. Then he was aware of a pleasant-faced young chap, bending over him, listening to his chest, through a stethoscope. He discovered also that one of those tight blood pressure contraptions was wrapped around his arm. He felt the prick of a needle. Then he was lifted to a sitting position and given a couple of pills. A little stroke, eh? beamed the young doctor cheerily. Well, you'll be all right in a few minutes. The ephedrine did the trick. Mr. Feathersmith ground his teeth. If there was anything in this topsy-turvy modern age he liked less than anything else, it was the kind of doctors they had. A little stroke, eh? The young whippersnapper. A fresh kid, no more. Now take old Dr. Simpson back at Cliffordsville. There was a doctor for you. A sober, grave man who wore a beard and a proper Prince Albert coat. There was no folderol about him, 
newfangled balderdash about basal metabolism, x-rays, electrocardiograms, blood counts, and all that rot. He simply looked at a patient's tongue and asked him about his bowels, and then wrote a prescription, and he charged accordingly. Do you have these spells often? asked the young doctor. He was so damn cheerful about it, it hurt. Never, blared Mr. Feathersmith. Never was sick a day in my life. Three of you fellows pored over me for three days, but couldn't find a thing wrong. Consolidated Mutual wrote me a million straight life on the strength of that, and tried their damnness to sell me another million. That's how good I am. Pretty good, agreed the doctor with a laugh. When was that? Oh, lately. Back in 28, huh? That was when even the life insurance companies didn't mind taking a chance. Now and then. You were still in your fifties then, I take it. I'm as fit as a fiddle yet, asserted the old man doggedly. He wanted to pay this upstart off and be rid of him. Maybe, agreed the doctor, commencing to put his gear away. But you didn't look it a little while ago. If I hadn't got here when I did... Look here, young man, defied Mr. Feathersmith. You can't scare me. I'm not trying to, said the young man easily. If a heart block can't scare you, nothing can. Just the same, you've got to make arrangements, either with a doctor or an undertaker. Take your choice. My car's downstairs, if you think I'll do. Huh, sputtered Mr. Feathersmith, but when he tried to get up he realised how terribly weak he was. He let them escort him to the elevator, supporting him on either side, and a moment later was being snugged down on the back seat of the doctor's automobile. The drive uptown from Wall Street was as unpleasant as usual. More so, for Mr. Feathersmith had been secretly dreading the inevitable day when he would fall into doctor's hands, and now that it had happened, he looked out on the passing scene in search of a diversion. The earlier snow had turned to rain, but there were myriads of men and lots of equipment clearing up the accumulation of muck and ice. He gazed at them sourly. Scrape, scrape, scrape. Noise, clamour and dirt, all symptomatic of the modern city. He yearned for Cliffordsville, where it rarely snowed, and when it did, it lay for weeks in unsullied whiteness on the ground. He listened to the gentle swishing of the whirling tyres on the smooth, wet pavement, disgusted at the monotony of it. One street was like another, one city like another, smooth, endless concrete, walled in by brick and plate glass, and dreary rows of light poles. No one but a fool would live in a modern city or a modern town for that matter, since they were but unabashed tiny imitations of their swollen sisters. He sighed. The good old days were gone, beyond recapture. It was that sigh and that forlorn thought that turned his mind to Forfin.
Thorfinn was a shady fellow he knew and once or twice had employed. He was a broker of sort, for the lack of a better designation. He hung out in a dive near Chatham Square and was altogether a disreputable person, yet he could accomplish strange things, such as dig up information known only to the dead, or produce prophecies that could actually be relied on. The beauty of dealing with him was that, so long as the fee was adequate, and it had to be that, he delivered the goods and asked no questions. His only explanation of his particular powers was that he had contacts, gifted astrologers and numerologists, unprincipled demonologists and their ilk. He was only a go-between. He insisted and invariably required a signed waiver before undertaking any assignment. Mr. Feathersmith recalled now that once when he had complained of a twinge of rheumatism that Thorfinn had hinted darkly at being able to produce some of the water of the Fountain of Youth, at a price of course, and when the price was mentioned, Mr. Feathersmith had haughtily ordered him out of the office. The doctor's office was the chamber of horrors he had feared. There were many rooms and cubbyholes filled with shiny adjustable enameled torture chairs and glassy cabinets in which rows of cruel instruments were laid. There were fever machines and other expensive looking apparatus and a laboratory full of mysterious tubes and jars. White smocked nurses and assistants flitted noiselessly about like helpful ghosts. They stripped him and weighed him and jabbed needles in him and took his blood. They fed him messy concoctions and searched his innards with a fluoroscope. They sat him in a chair and snapped electrodes on his wrists and ankles to record the pounding of his heart on a film and after other thumpings, listenings and measurings, they left him weary and quivering to dress himself, alone. Naked as he was and fresh from the critical probing of the doctor and his gang, he was unhappily conscious of how harshly age had dealt with him after all. He was pink and lumpy now, where he had once been firm and tanned. His spindly shanks seemed hardly adequate, for the excess load he now carried about his middle. Until now, he had valued the prestige and power that goes with post-maturity. But now, for the first time in his life, he found himself hankering after youth again. Yes, youth would be desirable on any terms. It was a thoughtful Mr. Feathersmith who finished dressing that afternoon. The doctor was waiting for him in his study, as infernally cheerful as ever. He motioned the old man to a chair. You're a man of the world, he began, so I guess you can take it. There's nothing to be alarmed over immediately, but you've got to take care of yourself. If you do, there are probably a good many years left in you yet. You've got a cardiac condition that has to be watched. Some gastric impairments. Your kidneys are pretty well shot. 
there are signs of senile arthritis and some glandular failure and vitamin deficiency. Otherwise, you're in good shape. Go on. Now Mr. Feathersmith knew he would have to get in touch with Forfin. You've got to cut out all work, avoid irritation and excitement, and see me at least weekly. No more tobacco, no more liquor, no spicy or greasy foods, no late hours. I'm giving you a diet and some prescriptions as to pills and tablets you will need. The doctor talked on, laying down the law in precise detail. His patient listened dumbly, resolving steadfastly that he would do nothing of the sort. Not as long as he had a broker on the string who could contact magicians. That night Mr. Feathersmith tried to locate Forfin, but Forfin could not be found. The days rolled by and the financier felt better. He was his old testy self again, and promptly disregarded all the doctor's orders. Then he had his second heart attack, and that one nearly took him off. After that he ate the vile diet, swallowed his vitamin and gland extract pills, and duly went to have his heart examined. He began liquidating his many business interests. Sooner or later, his scouts would locate Forfin. After that, he would need cash, and lots of it. Youth, he realised now, was worth whatever it could be bought for. The day he met with his lawyers and the buyer's lawyers to complete the sale of Pyramidal Enterprises Incorporated, Mr. Blakesley leaned over and whispered that Forfin was back in town. He would be up to see Mr. Feathersmith that night. A gleam came into the old man's eye, and he nodded. He was ready. By tomorrow, all his net worth would be contained in cash and negotiable securities. It was slightly over $32 million altogether, an ample bribe for the most squeamish demonologist, and enough left over for the satisfaction of whatever dark powers his incantations might raise. He was confident money would do the trick. It always had for him, and was not the love of it said to be the root of all evil. Mr. Feathersmith was elated. Under ordinary circumstances, he would have conducted a transaction of the magnitude of selling pyramidal with the maximum of quibbling and last-minute haggling. But today, he signed all the papers with alacrity. He even let Polaris Petroleum and Pipeline go without a qualm though the main Polaris producing field was only a few miles south of his beloved Cliffordsville. He often shuddered to think of what an oil development would do to a fine old town like that. But it made him money, and anyhow, he had not been back to the place since he left it years ago to go and make his fortune. After the lawyers had collected their papers and gone, he took one last look around. In his office, as in his apartment, there was no trace of garish chromium and red leather. It was richly finished in quiet walnut panelling, with a single fine landscape on one wall. 
a bookcase, a big desk, two chairs and a Persian rug completed the furnishings. The only ultra-modern feature was the stock ticker and the news teletype. Mr. Feathersmith liked his news neat and hot off the griddle. He couldn't abide the radio version, for it was adorned and embellished with the opinions and interpretations of various commentators and self-styled experts. It was early when he got home. By chance it was raining again, and as he stepped out from his limousine under the marquee canopy that hung out over the sidewalk, the doorman rushed forward with an umbrella, lest the stray drop wet his financial highness. Mr. Featherstone brushed by the man angrily. He did not relish sycophantism, he thought. He went up in the elevator and out into the softly lit corridor that led to his apartment. Inside, he found his houseboy Felipe listening raptly to a swing version of a classic, playing it on his combination FM radio and Victrola. Shut the damn thing off, roared Mr. Feathersmith. Symphonic music he liked when he was in the mood for it, but nothing less. Then he proceeded to undress and have his bath. It was the one bit of ritual in his day that he really enjoyed. His bathroom was a marvel of beauty and craftsmanship, in green and gold tile, with a sunken tub. There was a needle bath too, a glass-enclosed shower, and a sweat chamber. He reveled for a long time in the steamy water, then remembered that Forfin might come at any time, and he hurried out. His dinner was ready. Mr. Feathersmith glowered at the table as he sat down. It was a good table to look at, but that was not the way he felt about it. The cloth was cream-coloured damask, and the service exquisitely tooled sterling. In the centre sat a vase of roses with sprays of ferns. But the crystal pitcher beside his plate held certified milk, a poor substitute for the vintage pomade he was accustomed to. Near it lay a little saucer containing the abominable pills, six of them, two red, two brown, one black and one white. He ate his blue points. After that came brawled Pompano, for the doctor said he could not get too much fish. Then there was fresh asparagus and creamed new potatoes. He topped it off with fresh strawberries and cream. No coffee, no liqueur. He swallowed the stuff mechanically, thinking all the while of Chubb's place back in Cliffordsville. There a man could get an honest-to-goodness beefsteak, two inches thick and reeking with fat, fresh cut from a steer killed that very day in Chubb's backyard. He thought too of Pablo, the tamale man. His stand was on the corner by the opera house and he kept his sizzling product in a huge lard can wrapped in an old red tablecloth. The can sat on a small charcoal stove so as to keep warm and the hole was in a basket. Pablo dished out the greasy shook-wrapped morsels onto scraps of torn newspaper and once sat down on the cab and ate them with his fingers. They may have been made of fragments of dog, as some of his detractors alleged, but they were good. 
Ten cents a dozen they were. Mr. Feathersmith sighed, another mournful sigh. He would give ten thousand dollars for a dozen of them right now, and the ability to eat them. Feathersmith waited impatiently for Forfin to come. He called the operator and instructed her to block all calls, except that announcing his expected guest. Damn that phone anyway. All that any Tom, Dick or Harry who wanted to intrude had to do was dial a number. The old man had an unlisted phone, but people who knew where he lived called through, the house switchboard notwithstanding. At length the shifty little broker came. Mr. Feathersmith lost no time in approaches or sparring. Forfin was a practical man like himself, you could get down to cases with him without blush or apology. I want, Mr. Feathersmith said boldly, to turn the hand of the clock back forty years. I want to go back to the town of Cliffordsville, where I was born and raised, and find it just as I left it. I propose to start life all over again. Can you contact the right people for the job? That's a big order, and it scares me. That'll involve old Nick himself. He looked uneasily about, as if the utterance of the name was a sort of inverted blasphemy. Why not? snapped the financier bristling. I always deal with principles. They can act, skip the hirelings, demons, or whatever they are. I know said Forfin, shaking his head disapprovingly. But he's a slick bargainer. Oh, he keeps his pacts to the dot, but he'll slip a fast one over just the same. It's his habit. He gets a kick out of it, outsmarting people, and it'll cost. Cost like hell. I'll be the judge of the cost, said the old man stiffly, thinking of the scant term of suffering circumscribed years that was the best hope the doctor had held out to him and as to bargaining i'm not a pure sucker how do you think i got where i am okay said forfin with a shrug it's your funeral but it'll take some doing when do we start now he sees mortals only by appointment and I can't make him. I'll arrange for you to meet Madame Hecate. You'll have to build yourself up with air. After that, you're on your own. You'd better have plenty of ready dough. You'll need it. I've got it, said Mr. Feathersmith shortly. And yours? Forget it. I'll get my cut from them. That night's sleep was slow in coming. He reviewed his decision and did not regret it. He had chosen the figure of forty deliberately. Forty from seven left thirty, in his estimation, the ideal age. If he were much younger, he would be pushed around by his seniors. If he were much older, he wouldn't gain so much by the jump back. But at thirty he would be in the prime physical condition, old enough to be thought of as mature by the youngsters and young enough to command the envy of the oldsters. And as he remembered it, 
the raw frontier days were past, the effete modernism yet to come. He slept, he dreamed, he dreamed of old Cliffordsville, with its tree-lined streets and sturdy houses sitting way back, each in its own yard and behind its own picket fence. He remembered the soft clay streets and how good the dust felt between the toes when he ran barefoot in the summertime. Memories of good things to eat came to him, the old spring house and watermelons hung in bags in the well, chickens running the yard, and eggs an hour old. There was Sarah the cow, and old Aunt Anna the cook, and then there were the wide open business opportunities of those days. A man could start a bank, or float a stock company, and there were no snooping inspectors to tell him what he could or couldn't do. There were no blaring radios, or rumbling stinking trucks, or raucous auto horns. People stayed healthy because they led the good life. Mr. Feathersmith rolled over in bed and smiled. It wouldn't be long now. The next afternoon Forfin called him. Madame Hecate would see him at five, and he gave a Fifth Avenue address. That was all. Mr. Feathersmith was really surprised when he entered the building. He had thought a witch would hang out in some dubious district where there was grime and cobwebs. But this was one of the swankiest buildings in a swanky street. It was filled with high-grade jewellers and diamond merchants for the most part. He wondered if he had heard the address wrong. At first, he was sure he had for when he came to examine the directory board, he could find no Hecate under the H's or any witches under the W's. He stepped over to the elevator starter and asked him whether there was a tenant by that name. If she's on that board, there is, said that worthy, looking Mr. Feathersmith up and down in a disconcerting fashion. He went meekly back to the board. He rubbed his eyes. There was her name, in both places, Madame Hecate, Consultant Witch, Suite 1313. He went back to the elevators, then noticed that the telltale arcs over the doors were numbered 10, 11, 12, 14, 15, and so on. There was no 13th floor. He was about to turn to the starter again when he noticed a small car down the end of the hall. Over its door was the label, Express to 13th Floor. He walked down to it and stepped inside. An insolent little guy in a red monkey jacket lounged against the starting lever. He leered up at Mr. Feathersmith and said, Are you sure you want to go up, Pop? Mr. Feathersmith gave him the icy stare he had used so often to quell previous impertinences, and then stood rigidly looking out the door. The little hellion slid the door with a shrug and started the cab. When it stopped, he got off in a small foyer that led to a single door. The sign on the door said merely, Enter. So Mr. Feathersmith turned the knob and went in. The room looked like any other midtown reception room. 
there was a desk presided over by a lanky sour woman of uncertain age, whose only noteworthy feature was her extreme pallor and haggard eyes. The walls were done in a flat blue-green pastel colour that somehow hinted at iridescence, and were relieved at the top by a frieze of interlaced pentagons of gold and black. A single etching hung on the wall, depicting a conventionalised witch astride a broomstick, silhouetted against a full moon, accompanied by a flock of bats. A pair of chairs and a sofa completed the furnishings. On the sofa, a huge black cat slept on a red velvet pillow. Madame Hecate is expecting you, said the cadaverous receptionist in a harsh metallic voice. Please be seated. Ah, a zombie, thought Mr. Feathersmith, trying to get into the mood of his environment. Then, as a gesture of goodwill, though he had no love for any animal, he bent over and stroked the cat. It lifted its head with magnificent deliberation, regarding him venomously for a moment through baleful green eyes. Then, with the most studied contempt, spat. After that, it promptly tucked its head back in its bosom, as if that disposed of the matter for all eternity. Lucifer doesn't like people, remarked the zombie, powdering her already snowy face. Just then, a buzzer sounded faintly, three times. The credit man is ready for you, said the ghostly receptionist. You'll have to pass him first. This way, please. For some reason that did not astonish Mr. Feathersmith as much as some other features of the place. After all, he was a businessman, and even in dealing with the myrmidons of hell, business was business. He followed her through the inner door and down a side passage to a little office. The fellow who received him was an affable thin young man with brooding dark brown eyes and an errant black lock that kept falling down and getting into his eyes. A statement of your net worth, please, asked the young man, indicating a chair. He turned and waved a hand about the room. It was lined with fat books, shelf after shelf of them, and there were filing cases stuffed with loose papers and photographs. I should warn you in advance that we have already made an independent audit, and know the answer. It is a formality, as it were, though you ought to know. Mr. Feathersmith gazed upon the books with wonderment. Then his blood ran chill, and he felt the goose flesh rise on him, in a queer, bristly feeling, among the short hairs on the back of his neck. The books were all about him. There were two rows of thick volumes, neatly titled in gold leaf, such as J. Feathersmith, Private Life, Volume 9. There was one whole side of the room lined with other books in sets. One was labelled Business Transactions, another Subconscious Thoughts and Dreams, and then other volumes on various related aspects of their subject. One that shocked him immensely bore the horrid title of Indirect Murders, etc., 
For an instant he did not grasp its import, until he recalled the aftermath of the Trans-Mississippi debentures. It was a company he had bought into, only to find it mostly water. He had done the only thing to do, get out with a profit. He blew the water up into vapour, then pulled the plug. A number of suicides resulted. He supposed the book was about that and similar fiascos. He turned to face the credit man and was further dismayed to see that gentleman scrutinising a copy of the contract of the sale of the pyramidal company. So he knew the terms exactly. Worse, on the blotter in plain sight was a photostat copy of a will that he had made out that very morning. It was an attempt on Mr. Feathersmith's part to hedge. He had left all his money to the Simonist Brotherhood for the propagation of religion, thinking to use it as a bargaining point with whatever demon showed up to negotiate with him. Mr. Feathersmith scratched his neck, a gesture of annoyance at being forestalled that he had not used for years. It was all the more irritating that the credit man was paring softly and smiling to himself. Well, said the credit man. Mr. Feathersmith had lost the first round and knew it. He had come in to arrange a deal and to dictate more or less his own terms. Now he was at a distinct disadvantage. There was only one thing to do if he wanted to go on. That was to come clean. He reached into his pocket and pulled out a slip of paper. There was one scribbled line on it. Net worth $32,673,251.03 plus personal effects. As of noon today, added Mr. Feathersmith, handing the paper across the desk. The credit man glanced at it, then shoved it into a drawer with the comment that it appeared to be substantially correct. Then he announced that that was all. He could see Madame Hecate now. Madame Hecate turned out to be the greatest surprise so far. Mr. Feathersmith had become rather dubious as to his ability to provise these strange people he was dealing with, but he was quite sure the witch would be a hideous creature with an outjutting chin, meeting a down-hanging beak with the proverbial hairy warts for facial embellishments. She was not like that at all. Madame Hecate was as cute a little trick as could be found in all the city. She was a vivacious tiny brunette with sparkling eyes and a gay carefree manner and was dressed in a print house dress covered by a tan smock. You're a lucky man, Mr. Feathersmith, she giggled, wiping her hands on a linen towel and tossing it into a handy container. The audience with his nibs is arranged for about an hour from now. Ordinarily he only comes at midnight, but lately he's had to spend so much time on earth he works on a catch-as-can basis. At the moment he's in Germany, in his midnight there now, you know, giving advice to one of his most trusted mortal aides. No doubt you could guess the name, but for reasons you'll appreciate, 
our clientele is regarded as confidential, but he'll be along shortly. Splendid, said Mr. Feathersmith. For a long time it had been a saying of his that he wouldn't wait an hour for an appointment with the devil himself, but circumstances had altered. He was glad that he had only an hour to wait. Now, said the witch, shooting him a coy sidelong glance, let's get the preliminaries over with. A contract will have to be drawn up, of course, and that takes time. Give me the main facts as to what you want, and I'll send them along to the chief fiend in the Bureau of Covenants. By the time his nibs gets here, the scribes will have everything ready. She produced a pad and a pencil, and waited, smiling sweetly at him. Well, he said a trifle embarrassed, because he did not feel like telling her quite all that was on his mind. She seemed such an innocent to be in the witch business. I had an idea it would be nice to go back to the town of my boyhood, to spend the rest of my life. Yes, she said eagerly. And then? Well, he finished lamely, I guess that's about all, just put me back in Cliffordsville as of forty years ago. That's all I want. How unique, she exclaimed delightedly. You know, most men want power and wealth and success in love and all that sort of thing. I'm sure his nibs will grant this request instantly. Mr. Feathersmith grunted. He was thinking that he had already acquired all those things from an uninformed, untrained start in that same Cliffordsville just forty years ago. Knowing what he did now about men and affairs and the subsequent history of the world, what he would accomplish on a second lap would astonish the world. But the thought suggested an addendum. It should be understood, he appended, that I am to retain my present uh, wisdom, unimpaired, and complete memory. A trifle, Mr. Feathersmith, she bubbled. A trifle, I assure you. He noticed that she had noted the specifications on separate sheets of paper, and since he indicated that was all, she advanced to a nearby brazier that stood on a tripod and lit them with a burning candle she borrowed from a sconce. The papers sizzled smartly into greenish flame, curled and disappeared, without leaving any ash. They are there now, she said. Would you like to see our plant while you wait? With pleasure, he said, with great dignity. Indeed, he was most curious about the layout, for the room they were in was a tiny cubicle, containing only a high desk and a stool, and the brazier. He had expected more demonic paraphernalia. She led the way out, and he found the place was far more extensive than he thought. It must cover the entire floor of the building. There was a long hall, and off it many doors. This is the alchemical department, she said, turning into the first one. I was working in here when you came. That's why my hands were so gummy. Dragon fat is vile stuff. Don't you think? She flashed those glowing black eyes on him, and a dazzling smile. I can well imagine. 
he replied. He glanced into the room. At first sight it had all the appearance of a modern chemical laboratory, though many of the vessels were queerly shaped. The queerest of all were the alchemists, of whom about a dozen sat about on high stools. They were men of incalculable age, bearded, and wearing heavy-rimmed octagonal-lensed eyeglasses. All wore black smocks, spattered with silvery crescents, sunbursts, stars, and such symbols. All were intent on their work. The bottles on the tables bore fantastic labels, such as asp venom, dried camel leopard blood, and powdered unicorn horn. The man at the Alembic, explained the witch sweetly, is compounding a modified love filter. You'd be surprised at how many star salesmen depend upon it. It makes them virtually irresistible. We let them have it on a commission basis. She pointed out some other things, such as the two men adjusting the rheostat on an electric athanor, all of which struck Mr. Feathersmith as being extremely incongruous. Then they passed on. The next room was the voodoo department, where a black sculptress was hard at work fashioning wax dolls from profile, and front-view photographs of her clients, most hated enemies. An assistant was studying a number of the finished products and occasionally thrusting pins into certain vital parts. There were other unpleasant things to be seen there, and Mr. Feathersmith shuddered and suggested... They pass on. If it affects you that way, said the witch, with her most beguiling smile, maybe we had better skip the next. The next section was devoted to demonology, and Mr. Feathersmith was willing to pass it by, having heard something of the practices of that sect. Moreover, the hideous moans and suppressed shrieks that leaked through the wall were sufficient to make him lose any residual interest in the orgies. But it was not to be. A door was flung open, and an old hag tottered out, holding triumphantly aloft a vial of glowing violet vapour. Look, she cackled with hellish glee, I caught it, the anguish of a dying hen. Mr. Feathersmith suffered a twinge of nausea and a bit of fright, but the witch paused long enough to coo a few words of praise. She popped her head into the door beyond where a senile practitioner could be seen sitting in a black robe and dunce's cap, spangled with stars and the signs of the zodiac. He was in the midst of a weird planetarium. This is the phoniest racket in the shop, she murmured, but the customers love it. The old guy is a shrewd guesser. That's why he gets by. Of course his horoscopes and all these props are just so much hogwash. Custom, you know? Mr. Feathersmith flicked a glance at the astrologer, then followed her into the next room. A class of neophytes appeared to be undergoing instruction in the art of vampirism. A demon with a pointer was holding forth before a set of wall charts depicting the human circulatory system and emphasising the importance of knowing just how to reach the carotid artery and jugular vein. The section just beyond was similar. It housed the department of lycanthropy, 
and a tough-looking middle-aged witch was lecturing on the habits of predatory animals. As Mr. Feathersmith and his guy looked in, she was just concluding some remarks on the value of prior injections of aqua regia as a resistant to possible silver bullets. He never knew what other departments were in the place, for the witch happened to glance up at one of the curious clocks that adorned the walls. She said it kept infernal time. At any rate, his nibs was due shortly. They must hurry to the apparition chamber. <laughs> 